everyone. My name is Lauren Consul. I'm an attorney at the New York Prosecutors Training Institute and one of two traffic safety resource prosecutors for New York State. Here with me today is Investigator John McGuire from the State University at Albany Police. And John, before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your career? Absolutely. I'm an investigator with the University of Police at SUNY Albany, and I've been a police officer since 2000. I became an instructor in breath analysis. I became an instructor in standardized field sobriety testing. And I also am a DRE and a DRE instructor. So, John, we're going to talk primarily about drugged driving and some of the challenges that we have uh, specifically in New York State with drugged driving. And one of the things that I run into a lot is the struggle for prosecutors primarily is what I deal with to understand that not all drugs are like alcohol. So one of the issues that we have is that alcohol is the only drug that is actually eliminated in a linear fashion and therefore can be reverse extrapolated. And we have a ton of research about alcohol. We know that everyone's ability to drive a vehicle is impaired over a 0.08. Many research bodies are now showing even lower levels for that. But we do have those numbers, we have those standards, and one of the problems that I find with marijuana is that prosecutors are looking for that equivalent with marijuana, and it's just not there. I'm speaking with other traffic safety professionals around the country. They have actually advised us in crafting legislation that we should not set an anagram level because it does not correlate to impairment the same way that that 08 level does with alcohol. So... One of the things that I always emphasize with my prosecutors because of this and because of the way our statutes are written in New York is that the officer's observations and, of course, the DRE evaluation and all of the great information that comes from that, that is incredibly important because, one, our statute requires us not only to identify what drug we have, but also to prove impairment by that drug. Um, so as a DRE, you've seen a lot of this evidence firsthand. Can you talk about, from your perspective, how you put those cases together and why they're so crucial and maybe some tips for our prosecutors when dealing with their law enforcement to kind of elicit the best information? Sure. So through all levels of training, starting out with basic standardized field sobriety course, working on to the A-RIDE, the Advanced Roadside Impaired Driving Enforcement, culminating in the DRE training, the focus is on impairment. And in every single manual that's put out by NHTSA that we have in the state, they talk about how different drugs cause different things, including the basic standardized field sobriety manual. So we know, like you mentioned, that certain BACs should cause an intoxication impairment working up to intoxication. And when we have a drug aspect, we all start to worry. Everybody involved starts to worry. The big thing is, is that when we're trained to standardize field sobriety, those tests, that basic three-day course, as you know, is actually the hardest standard to prove. Mm -hmm. So we get our definitions from people v. Cruz in what's impairment to any extent when it comes to drug driving, or we need substantial intoxication when it comes to an alcohol-related incident. So the big thing is to take a step back and understand that the tests that we have our officers are trained to pick things up from phase one, just the vehicle in motion, and all of those things can lend to impairment if they're explained correctly. And so that's pretty much the training. My grandmother can pick out when somebody is a 2-0 BAC. That's not hard to do, and she's never had any training except for life experience. 
So when we want to show a case and the best part that we have for that case, we need to focus on being able to explain the impairment, not just saying that did they pass or fail on this or perform poorly on the field sobriety test? What did we see that led everything to that point before we even got to the test are things that we need to, to spend some time on. And for the prosecutors, I think that this means asking the questions, asking the officer, so why did you pull this vehicle over? What made you escalate your investigation? What first led you to believe that this person was impaired by either a drug or by alcohol? So I think really important for the prosecutors to ask the questions to, you know, trigger that. I mean, law enforcement, you guys see, you know, obviously we do two tons and tons of cases, you know, jog their memory. And I think also the importance of paperwork. I hate to harp on an old issue, but we can't overemphasize on all sides, you know, the importance of communication and making sure that we fill out the DWI paperwork. And hopefully most agencies at this point are using that note card and that investigative card to kind of standardize and again, prompt the questions to show that impairment. I couldn't agree more. And we as instructors statewide have pushed, there's no reason not to use this card. The entire process is set up to succeed and that utilization of that card allows us to recall information at the time that might be tough to recall a year and a half later when we're sitting on the stand testifying. So we have the ability, we have all the aspects of each standardized field sobriety test that are on there along with that breakup of phase one, phase two, phase three in the vehicle stop where we can elicit information from that officer about impairment or intoxication depending on what drug we're dealing with. And we have to remember alcohol is a drug. Alcohol is a CNS depressant. So when we start seeing the indicators of somebody that might be intoxicated and we get as the officer in that fork in the road, are we heading towards a drug driving arrest or are we heading towards an alcohol arrest? We need to be able to explain. Absolutely. And certainly I think in refusal cases too, observations are always going to be crucial. So again, we can't emphasize that enough. Make sure, you know, officers that you're getting those and documenting them so you can recall them and prosecutors, make sure that you're asking the questions, you know, before and during trial of your officers to get that out. So another issue, and I think particularly on the law enforcement side that we see in drug driving cases, and particularly a challenge I think for DREs, is polydrug use. And that is so prevalent. And I think probably, if I had to guess, more often than not, the individuals you're dealing with are on more than one drug. It's typically not just one. So can you talk about, you know, how that affects you as a DRE and, again, what can the prosecutors do to help and make sure that we clarify and get all the information out in cases like those that can be really tricky? Absolutely. And there's an attempt at a demystification. Right? So we understand what's comfortable. We understand that alcohol, like you mentioned, alcohol has specific BACs. You get specific impairment leading to intoxication. And then as an officer, that's what's comfortable and that's what we deal with. So now you have somebody that is showing extreme impairment. And when we utilize the PBT, there's a very low positive reading on that PBT. And again, I didn't start out being good at this before being a police officer and go through the training. I had to have it shown to me so I could understand it. So when I saw that there was a low reading on that and it was inconsistent, that BAC is inconsistent with the impairment, the initial assumption is that maybe I did something wrong or maybe I wasn't paying attention or maybe I was reading the information that was given to me in an incorrect manner. The thing is, is that based on training and experience and 
understanding of what you're looking at, it's impairment. It doesn't matter whether it's a small amount of drugs or a large amount of alcohol, we still have impairment that is gonna show up from that person. So when we have poly drug use, what we know based off of the statistics and based off of the research that has been done, we know that a very low level of alcohol and a very low level of cannabis or marijuana can lead to a ton of impairment. And if we think about that, there's poly drug use all the time. If you drink a Pepsi with rum in it, you're drinking something with caffeine, which is a stimulant, and a depressant at the same time. So if we can break it down into that aspect and then realize that, you know, especially if there's a DRE involved, we have a symptomology matrix. We can plug in the information that this person is giving us about their body, whether it be from you know what they're telling us or physiologically what they're showing us during the vehicle stop leading up to a DRE evaluation. When we plug those things in, we can explain why there is the things that we're seeing. Why somebody on a stimulant and a depressant at the same time, or a stimulant and a narcotic at the same time, can have normal blood pressure and, well, within a DRE average range blood pressure, and things that shouldn't be, we can explain why they're there. So that can be really important, I think, in clearing up some of the things that the defense could point to to say that the individual wasn't impaired, I think, is what I'm hearing you say. So again, very important to keep the lines of communication open between the DRE and the prosecutor and the arresting officers or any other officers that are involved. In your experience, and of course every office and county is going to have policy, so I'm certainly not trying to dictate to anyone what to do, but one of the things that I think can be a real challenge is when you get back lab results for someone who, based on everything your officers are telling you, based on all of the SFSTs, every observation, they're impaired, and no alcohol on board, and you get back nothing detected from the lab. In your experience, have you had any success navigating those types of cases, you know, with the prosecution or otherwise? Yes, we have. And the big thing is, again, we as human nature, we want validation for what we saw, right? So when we, when we send out that blood work and we say, you know, document everything that we've documented, and there is, there is a severe amount of impairment, and then we get a blank sheet of paper back from the lab that says nothing detected, immediately we're like, uh-oh, right? And that shouldn't be. And it's very easy to fall into that trap of uh-oh, but there's a ton of different reasons why we can find none detected. Anybody that's using the state police lab, they can't fund the amount to be able to test for all the drugs that are possible. If you look at the depressant category alone, there's over 300 different types of depressants that somebody could take, both legal and illegal, then have in their system that can impair them. So we can't test for every single thing. That's why when we have a DRE involved, when we have even just basic SFST officer in there, we have them ask questions. Those are, those are the medical questions that we ask in the beginning. Are you taking any medication under the care of a doctor or a dentist? Is there any reason that we can find, other than the fact that you've been taking drugs or drinking alcohol, as a reason for that impairment? So people will tell you things. I mean, and I hate to say this, I hate to break this to everybody. People will also lie to you, and I know that that's tough, but the explanation that people give for the questions that we ask helps for us to understand what's going on in that person's body. So 
if they tell us that they're on a depressant and it comes back as none detected in there, which is pretty much what we're going to see, that's where the prosecutor and the officer and potentially the DRE, if there wasn't one involved, need to have a conversation. Is this something that should have happened? And nine times out of ten, it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't come back non detected. Some options that we've had that we've used in Albany County were to send it out to a private laboratory outside of New York State. And this is not an advertisement for NMS labs, but we've had good luck with NMS labs. They test for a great deal of drugs that people have used, again, both legal and illegal. And where it's been undetected in New York State, when we send it out to that lab, it comes back with a drug that, again, nine times out of ten, is on that public health. Right. And that is another challenge that we do have as prosecutors is that any case for drug driving, you do, in order to prosecute it, have to be able to somehow prove what drug it is that is impairing the defendant. And not only that, but that drug has to be on public health law 3306 is a list of controlled substances, and the substance needs to be on that list. So that's another challenge that we have. And I would just also point out that the reason for those who may be unfamiliar with these cases that you would get some of those men detected results, but then perhaps NMS could pick something up would be one, NMS does test for a lot more than most of our state and county labs. The other reason is they do test for synthetics as well. Many of the synthetics, which of course no one, I don't think in any lab anywhere can keep up with all of them, but they do, you know, make a very good effort to keep up with a lot of the synthetic and analog drugs that are out there. And also sometimes it's simply a question of sensitivity to the testing. So there are different levels for different labs and different labs have different capabilities. So I think that that could be one of the challenges. The last thing that we'll talk about today is another huge challenge, I think, for law enforcement and prosecution all across the country, which is the legalization of marijuana, both for medical and recreational purposes. I think that inevitably, when this happens, it becomes a traffic safety challenge. So what have you seen as you are an officer, as we talked about in Albany, a fairly large university that is spread out throughout the city? We are situated fairly close to several states who have legalized for recreational and for medical. We in New York have medical use, although at this point it is fairly limited. I believe it was just recently expanded, however. How are you seeing that shape the impaired driving trends where you are? As with any change in something that initially was illegal and is now becoming legal, there is a lot of misinformation that has come out with it. Our university is a microcosm of society. It's no different than any other city, town, village. That's not saying that anybody doesn't have a problem. That's not saying that anybody does have a problem. The big thing is education. And our entire university, not just the UPD, has tried to educate people, and so has pretty much everybody else in the state, that it's illegal to consume cannabis and operate a car. Mm -hmm. The problem is there's an adage from a long time ago that marijuana drivers, they, they drive better because they're more focused. And if you look at even just our symptomatology matrix and, and the DRE aspect of things, you have something that raises blood pressure and raises pulse, but keeps your body temperature the same. And if you want to talk about a battle of epic proportions in just that aspect, when everything is revved up in your engine internally, your body temperature raises to get rid of the heat that's going on. Take away the effect of the 
cannabis has on the brain and all of those receptors that we have. There's CB1 receptors, CB2 receptors without getting too technical on it. So our body was kind of built to actually have cannabis in it and it's very, responds very well to it once we put it into our system. That being said, that response is imperative and that's why we're trying to actually find a medical kind of mid-ground of what we can do with cannabis. It's not going to be easy in the fact that the biggest thing is education. Having officers understand what is medical marijuana. I've had officers, they got shown them at what they thought was a medical marijuana card, and the person had a couple of ounces of green leafy substance, and they let them go, and that's not legal. So if we have the information, if we as law enforcement have questions about it, then the society is going to have a lot of more questions about it. People are using cannabis at a higher rate. We know that. It's a statistic thing. The traffic safety challenge is going to be able to have people understand that if they feel different, they're going to drive different and to be able to get that information out. It's a interesting drug category because me as a DRE, I have to change how I ask the question. I ask people, have you done any drugs today? And they say no. And then I ask them how much weed they smoked and they say, oh, only a little bit. So the idea of whether or not it's a drug and how it's going to affect you, it's a challenge. Yes, I've seen some good campaigning, and I want to say it may be nationwide, about if you feel different, you drive different. I think that's a good message to get out there. I think it's important, as you said, that people are educated and that we're just aware of what is going on around. And as you said, again, very key to the communication is asking the question the right way. So, you know, and of course, if law enforcement doesn't get the information on scene, then we don't have it to use, you know, in our prosecution. And because of that requirement of identifying the drug and it being on 3306, that actually that admission can be crucial to a drug driving case. So something really important to keep in mind. John, thank you very much. As things move forward and we see new legislation in the next session here in New York, we'll keep an eye on it and probably have you back to talk about some more issues. So thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity.